Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Pull and Peeps. As always, make sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts and check out all our old content on our website at www.pullandpeeps.com. Today, we have another expert roundtable episode, and Firth and I are so excited to dive into this topic. Yeah, absolutely, Christina. Also excited that you just moved into your new house. Thanks for setting up your internet just so we can do this recording. I love it. Today, we'll be speaking about ARDS phenotypes. Ever since med school, precision medicine has been something we were learning about. I was learning about then, and we talk about increase in frequency, talk about it in a, a range of fields. And more recently, in pulmonary critical care, it's become a large part of how we're sort of classifying and approaching diseases. So today, we're going to focus specifically on precision medicine for ARDS and phenotype. Thanks so much, Verf, and totally agree on how important this topic is. It's been recently a hot topic of discussion. And as a reminder to our listeners, ARDS, or Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome, is a clinical syndrome most commonly defined by the Berlin criteria. You may have remembered our episode on optimizing PEEP, where we talked about this a little bit further. But as a reminder, ARDS is identified by acute development of symptoms within one week, bilateral airspace opacities on chest imaging, and this can either be through chest x-ray or CT, respiratory failure not fully explained by fluid overload, and impaired oxygenation with the PaO2 to FiO2 ratio less than 300 on a PEEP of 5. Thanks, Monty, for going through it. And for anyone who missed that episode, you can definitely listen to our back episodes to hear a discussion of how we titrate PEEP in ARDS. Before we meet our guests, though, just our standard reminder that this episode is not for specific medical advice and the opinions of us and our guests are just our own and don't reflect our respective employees. All right, Firth. Well, so excited to introduce our first guest. Today, we have Dr. Annette Esper. Annette is an associate professor of medicine at Emory University School of Medicine. She works clinically in critical care and is the medical director of the step-down intensive care unit at Brady Memorial Hospital. In addition to her clinical activities, Annette does both clinical and translational research in ARDS and was the assembly chair for the ATS Critical Care Assembly this past year. Annette, we're so excited to have you on today and welcome to Pump Peeps. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be a part of this discussion. Awesome. Us too. Next, we have Dr. Caroline Caffey. Dr. Caffey is a professor of medicine and the anesthesia and medicine department at University of California, San Francisco. She is a true dynamo of ARDS research and a pioneer in the field of large phenotyping. And she has received numerous NIH grants with literally hundreds of publications on this topic. We'd spend the whole episode going through her accolades. We went through all of them, but just to mention a few, she was the previous ATS Critical Care Assembly Chair and this past year received a recognition award for scientific accomplishments because of her, the broad success of her investigations. It is a real pleasure to have you on the show today, Caroline. Oh, thanks so much, you guys. Thanks for having me here. I'm so happy to be here with you three. So let's get started. Christina mentioned earlier the criteria we use to diagnose ARDS, and it's definitely notable that this is a really broad definition. It's agnostic to multiple factors. We're not thinking about etiology. There's no biomarkers in there. And so a concept that comes up a lot when talking about precision medicine for ARDS is that it's got a lot of heterogeneity. Annette, could you tell us what it means when people talk about ARDS being a really heterogeneous disorder? That's a great question, Dave. Because as you mentioned, there are so many etiologies of ARDS, you can imagine there are people that are under the umbrella of ARDS that behave differently, whether it's when you think about outcomes or even how they behave with different therapies. And so that's what we're really talking about when we talk about ARDS heterogeneity. 
So there are various clinical factors that may predispose people to developing ARDS, and people can have different etiologies of ARDS. They can have different severities, severities of ARDS. And even at the biological level, there can be differences. And that's what we're talking about when we say heterogeneous syndrome. That's a great overview. And clearly that means a lot of different things. You have heterogeneity and all the different aspects that you mentioned. So how does that sort of affect your care at the bedside when you have a patient who has ARDS? And how does that sort of come up clinically for us? Clinically, it's just what this kind of highlights is that this there's not a one-size-fits-all model when treating these patients. And you realize just because you have one patient with ARDS doesn't mean they're going to behave the same as a second person with ARDS. And so that can be very challenging at the bedside when you're trying to determine what to do as far as therapeutic options and management for these patients. Yeah, we spent a whole hour another time talking about titrating PEEP and just how the one issue is just so complicated because of that heterogeneity. So I feel like we see it for every new patient that comes in. In addition to that clinical impact, I know this is referenced in the research literature a lot that the heterogeneity has had a huge impact on the clinical trials that we run in ARDS. Could you talk a little bit about how that clinical and biological heterogeneity you mentioned impacts researching ARDS and coming up with treatments? Well, as you all are aware, there's been decades of research on trying to come up with a therapeutic option for ARDS, and we don't really have a therapeutic option other than, you know, lung protective ventilation. And I think what we're realizing is that because this syndrome is so heterogeneous, that might explain why years of different randomized control trials have come up with nothing new for us to, to treat these patients with. And I think that's why um, as we move forward in, in the future of ARDS research, we need to focus on thinking about different subgroups of patients and in how they behave. Thank you so much for walking us through that, Annette. And I really like how you mentioned, you know, one size does not fit all and, you know, how that can be applied at the bedside and how we need to kind of have individualized care. It sounds like addressing the heterogeneity would be really helpful for multiple reasons. So Caroline, I wanted to go ahead and talk broadly about what it means to identify phenotypes or subtypes amongst patients with ARDS. And when I teach about ARDS, you know, with residents, when I'm in the attending in our ICU, we talk about how to identify it as either mild, moderate, or severe based on the P to F ratio. In your mind, is that considered phenotyping and or what features are considered when trying to identify phenotypes within this syndrome? Yeah, that's a great question, Christina. I think just like there are many different ways to slice an onion or slice a pie, there's a ton of different ways to phenotype ARDS. I absolutely think that based on severity, like you mentioned, mild, moderate, and severe is a relevant way to phenotype ARDS, but there are many others. So Annette referred to one earlier in this conversation, which is etiology, right? So trauma-associated lung injury versus sepsis versus pneumonia. Most recently, we've all been sort of obsessed, right, with COVID versus non-COVID ARDS as a, as a type of phenotyping. You can also imagine physiologic phenotypes, like you talked about around severity, or different types of physiology, higher compliance, lower compliance, differences in ventilatory ratio, for example. And then there's biologic phenotypes or phenotypes that actually combine multiple of these characteristics into one sort of package. And I think all of these can be potentially interesting. Personally, I think the reason that it's interesting to think about phenotyping is because we want to find patients who respond differently to treatments because of what Annette was saying about this 
long history of negative clinical trials in ARDS. I think that's what's really motivated a lot of the search for phenotypes of ARDS is trying to find some treatment responsive subgroup um, within this broader heterogeneous bunch. Thanks so much, Caroline. It sounds like there are a lot of different ways, and I think you mentioned at least five different ways to potentially classify patients. And that I wanted to ask you, how are phenotypes different than risk factors or risk scores that are often used in the ICU, such as an Apache score? I think phenotype just embodies a lot more, right? So someone can have a risk factor or some, or some, some factor that puts them at risk for developing a disease. But the phenotype not only you know considers the risk factor, but also con considers other things like potential you know environmental risk factors, it, the the host itself, their genotype. So phenotype is I think a broader description when about it compared to risk factor. So I think risk factor only gives you one component of the picture. So when you look at Apache, that doesn't tell you the whole story. Yeah, it sounds like that would certainly make a difference too when we're looking for those treatment responsive subgroups that Caroline mentioned. You know, if we're looking, it's not just how risk you have, but like all these different, you know, descriptors or actual biological differences that we have. And it's really striking to me that, you know, we're talking about different heterogeneity, talking about some biological aspects, but we really don't use any biological diagnostic criteria for ARDS. You know, there's no biomarker in the definition. There's no biomarker we track. Like I would love to have a troponin or a procalcitonin or ammonia that says, oh, their ARDS is getting better, but we haven't had something like that that we've used. So I wanted to take a quick detour in that direction and talk about biomarkers. You know, Annette, I know you've done some research in this area, and I wanted to see what role you think biomarkers have in defining ARDS phenotypes specifically. And I guess as like a way to make that more specific, because that's such a broad question, like what is the perfect ARD biomarker? You may not have found it yet, but what characteristics would that have? That you would look for? Oh, I wish I knew what the perfect ARDS biomarker yeah. <laughs> That's a great question. Well, yeah, so I think biomarkers in ARDS is because of how heterogeneous the syndrome is, you know, it's really hard to just identify one biomarker that tells the, the whole story and that can help you either diagnose or even potentially prognosticate or, or figure out if someone's going to respond to therapy or not. So I think there is a role for biomarkers, and there's a lot of various biomarkers that have been studied and, and a few that that seem to be the ones that are always sort of associated with either poor outcomes or potentially different therapeutic responses. But I think that the perfect biomarkers got to be one, has to be one that can identify a group of patients, either that is they're at risk for a disease or that respond to therapy in a certain way. And I think that biomarker probably isn't going to be one biomarker for ARDS. I imagine it would be a panel of biomarkers that describes a specific subgroup. And I think if it's going to be used at the bedside and have significant clinical utility and be something that we can use with our clinical acumen, it has to be something that you can measure easily, such as point of care testing, and it has to be reliable. A lot of the work that's been done is promising, but we're not yet at that stage where we can use a biomarker for ARDS diagnosis. I think that was perfect, right? Measurable, specific, and reliable. If we could have that, we'd be so set. And you mentioned some of the challenges or can come up with that. Caroline, just there, to build on that, are there any challenges that have been already come up that make it so difficult to identify biomarkers in ARDS? What has been the, at the real root of it? 
I think Annette highlighted a lot of them, right? So heterogeneity is one, right? We see that different um, etiologies of ARDS, for example, have different patterns of plasma biomarkers. So, um, you know, using those plasma biomarkers to identify all ARDS is probably not going to work. Um, real world applicability. So, um, you know, now some, some institutions, you can measure IL-6, but can you get it back in real time? Can you measure most of these protein biomarkers that have been studied in ARDS um, at the bedside or within any kind of real time frame? No, and definitely not when you get to sort of transcriptional profiles and things like that that are even, you know, at an earlier stage of development. Um, then you have challenges like temporal stability, right? How, how do these biomarkers change over the time course of ARDS? Um, so there are a lot of different challenges, um, but uh, I think there's also a lot of promise for all the reasons we've been talking about. Yeah, yeah, and as like a quick anecdote that Caroline and I worked on a research project together, we were looking at IL-6 and realized somewhat into it that people were using different labs and then they had different scales and it took months just to clean it and get some useful signal. And it was like, wow, well, this wouldn't have been helpful at the bedside at all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's a perfect example, right? IL-6 measured at one institution may not be the same as an IL-6 measured at the other institution or, you know, so really numerous challenges to overcome. But, but I'll say that other fields of medicine have worked out a lot of these problems. They're, they're, they're not necessarily technical problems um, for the most part. Uh, and so I think we can overcome them. That's great. And to go from there, I want to ask both of you. So I think we can overcome them. I'm sure we will one day, and maybe it'll be a panel or maybe it'll be one. But what biomarkers should people know about? You know, what will be in the New England Journal in 10 years? We mentioned IL-6. Are there any other specific ones that like a Palm Fellow today has to know about when they're thinking about ARDS? Well, some of the top biomarkers, I think, that have been sort of studied and found to, to be either associated with risk of developing RDS or, or poor prognosis would be things like S-Rage, Antipoietin 2, SPD. And so I think those are, you'll definitely see those biomarkers, you know, in the future, some kind of biomarker panel that we that we come up with. Yeah, I, I agree. Those would be top on my list in addition to sort of the inflammatory cytokine biomarkers we were alluding to earlier. I think SRAGE, which stands for soluble receptor for advanced glycation end products, is particularly interesting because it seems to be, well, it, it's expressed on different cells throughout the body, but it's expressed constitutively at highest levels on type 1 alveolar epithelial cells. <laughs> And pretty consistently shows higher levels in patients with direct causes of ARDS, like pneumonia, than patients with indirect. So it does seem to be, at least in part, a marker of alveolar epithelial injury. Um, so I think that one's particularly interesting. Um, I'll go out on a limb and say that I think maybe in 10 years, we'll be able to do metagenomic sequencing uh, of patients in a more real-time uh, environment. We actually already have metagenomic sequencing at UCSF on CSF samples for diagnosis of meningitis. So it's not that far off that we might be able at some point um, to use that for helping us identify pathogen, since most ARGS is, is related to a pathogen, and even components of the host response that we might be able to target. But that's like very optimistic looking to the future. Uh, it's amazing, though. Definitely. You know, keep a lookout for it. And then I'm going to mention S-Rage anytime I'm around to sound really smart after talking about the S. 
I know. I love, uh, I love the names of them, but yes, definitely so much to look forward to in the future. And now I just want to see, you know, how can we put all of the information together that we've talked about and kind of make it meaningful. So Caroline, I know you've been a real pioneer in using an analytical method called latent class analysis to look for phenotypes in ARDS. And I'm hoping today that you can just tell us a little bit about how latent class analysis works for those of us that may be listening and maybe not as familiar with it. Sure thing. So latent just means essentially hidden or sort of under the surface. And what this is is a statistical method that's a trying to ask the question in a data set that contains potentially heterogeneous um, patients, is there statistical evidence that there are distinct subgroups that are latent or hidden within that more heterogeneous group? And so latent class analysis can actually test the hypothesis, if you have a set of data, that a one-class model is an inferior fit to a two-class model, or a two-class model is an inferior fit for the data than a three-class model. So it's actually testing a hypothesis regarding the number of subgroups given a particular data set. Wonderful. And I know that one thing mentioned in some of your work is that while many factors go into the latent class analysis, such as demographics, clinical variables, other biomarkers, um, mortality isn't included in that. And I was wondering why latent class analysis is done without this consideration. Yeah, that's a great question. So when we originally started this work, I was working with a brilliant statistician that I still work with named Kevin DeLuke, who's a real expert on latent class analysis. And uh, he was the one that introduced me to this concept. And it's really different from regression models that are, you know, where you're trying, trying to find, for example, features that are associated with mortality, because you can just look at the, the data, for example, on a patient when they come into the ICU, all those factors that you mentioned, and sort of blind the computer to what's going to happen to them and just say, okay, if I just have this information, their demographics, their clinical labs, their vital signs, and some biomarkers, can we see patterns? Can we see hidden subgroups? even if we don't know what's going to happen to them, right? Because that's how patients come into us in the ICU. We don't know what's going to happen to them when they come in. All we have is that data that they present with. And so using that data, can we identify subsets of the patients? And then when we found that we could, and they were associated with clinical outcomes, that made them seem more meaningful, right? Because it suggested that these, these clusters of data or these, these classes had prognostic value. Thanks so much, Caroline, for talking about that, explaining that a little bit more. I definitely understand more about latent class analysis than I did just 20 minutes ago. I know that there are other statistical clustering techniques that unfortunately we won't have time or a scope to talk about today, but I did want to just bring up big data and phenotyping, you know, specifically omics. We're hearing more about metabolomics, transcriptomics, as well as proteomics um, and machine learning techniques used to analyze all these data. So Annette, what role do you see these omics studies playing in identifying ARDS subgroups? Omics will play a role. I think we're still early yeah, as far as, you know, in, in the phase of research and I think there's still a lot to be done. You know, as you mentioned earlier, these scores, these severity scores that we use in critically ill patients like Apache aren't enough to really identify and, and predict outcomes because of the clinical and biological heterogeneity that we talk about with ARDS. So I think using a sort of systems biology approach and this omics approach to identify subgroups has a lot of potential. And with that, 
with using these omics approaches and sort of this unbiased approach to finding these subgroups, you can potentially identify groups that behave similarly biologically. And I think that is why omics is, is such an interesting aspect of ARDS research and has a lot of potential to help us endotype patients, right? So we talk about phenotype, but really get to the biological mechanisms that differentiate patients. Oh, that's great. I love it. That word endotyping, actually thinking about what's driving all of this. And, and sort of dive into uh, some of the findings that have come up. The reason this session, we thought about the session was that in every journal that you read, there's something about you know, phenotyping now, and a lot of it's about ARDS. And inevitably, the hypo and hyperinflammatory phenotype keep being described. And Caroline, you described these, and, and others have, have also talked about them, and Dr. Boss in their group. Uh, and I know that you describe these in cohorts of ARDS patients from a lot of landmark randomized control trials. So I was hoping that you could tell us what features seem to define these hypo and hyperinflammatory phenotypes that we talk about. Yeah, sure thing. That's a great question, Dave. So as Christina mentioned earlier, we put a number of different types of variables into the models to identify the classes, including demographics, clinical data, um, like lab values, vital signs, and then about six to eight protein plasma biomarkers. Uh, and it turns out that the features that really distinguish the two phenotypes from each other are um, these inflammatory biomarkers. So the quote unquote hyperinflammatory phenotype um, has high plasma levels of interleukin six and eight, high levels of soluble TNF receptor one, uh, low levels of protein C, which is involved in coagulation and fibrolysis, those patients also have low bicarbonate, so they're acidotic, they're more commonly on vasopressors, uh, and they're more commonly in shock. So really, the demographics don't contribute that much to identifying these patients. It's primarily these inflammatory biomarkers, vital signs, and lab values. And I'm curious, you said, quote, unquote, hyperinflammatory. Is that, can I ask about that, quote, unquote? <laughs> yes, please. I'm glad you did. So I have some regrets about using that nomenclature. I was trying, we were trying when we were writing the paper to make it easier to read. And it gets really dull to read about like class two and class one and which one is which and how do you keep them straight? And so we said, well, these have high inflammatory biomarkers, so let's call them hyperinflammatory. But the name stuck more than we thought it would, frankly, and um, we don't really know that inflammation is the, at the heart of the pathogenesis of what separates these two groups. Now, our, one of the things my group is doing is a lot more sort of biology-focused studies to try to get at the mechanism, and, um, you know, we're getting more and more signals that inflammation may be important in distinguishing these two, but the quote-unquote hypoinflammatory phenotype still has elevated levels of inflammatory biomarkers compared to all of us sitting here having this conversation. So it's just to say the nomenclature is overly simplistic and may not reflect the actual biology of what's going on in these two groups of patients. Yeah, we love a good label in medicine, I feel like. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so you talked to us earlier about how it's valuable to identify these, you know, identifiable phenotypes without thinking about their outcomes and then see what happens to them to see if you, that adds any validity. So do those two different phenotypes you described in those RCTs, did they have different outcomes? Yes. So um, we've seen this now consistently across actually eight different data sets where we've applied this approach including both randomized control trials and observational cohorts. And then most recently, actually in a pediatric RCT, um, we see that the quote unquote hyperinflammatory phenotype has pretty dramatically worse clinical outcomes. So 
higher mortality, fewer ventilator-free days. Um, and that's both sort of at 28 days mortality and longer-term mortality up to 90 days. Wow, it's unbelievable. And, and you know, I think we've talked about how the ultimate goal is in hopefully identified treatments and subclasses that respond to some treatments. So is there any signal within all of that that the different phenotypes respond differently to some of the therapies that have been randomized? Yes. So that's really what's piqued our interest so much in this is that honestly, somewhat to my surprise, I, this was this was not like some grand plan that we had when we were analyzing the data. We just sort of thought, oh, well, gosh, you know, it turns out this is all in an RCT. So maybe we should test and see if they respond differently to treatments. This was in the alveoli trial, which was low versus high peak, negative study, right? And we found evidence that the phenotypes did respond differently to those treatments. So what's called an interaction or effect modification, meaning that the effect of the treatment differed on the basis of the phenotype. And we found a similar pattern in the FACT trial of fluid conservative versus fluid liberal therapy. And in the UK trial, the HARP2 trial of simvastatin versus placebo. Now, we have not found that universally. So in the sales trial, for example, which was resuvastatin versus placebo, we did not observe evidence of differential treatment response. So it's not like they respond differently to everything, but they did appear to respond differently in post hoc analysis to those, those three therapies. But the proof is going to be in the pudding, right? Like this all really needs to be tested prospectively before we are applying it to patients, because you could also just say, this is all just subgroup analysis, right? Albeit a, a sort of a different kind, but we haven't tested these hypotheses prospectively. Great. I think that's such an important point, but all great things and interesting things for us to build on in the future, Caroline. And I think so many people reference phenotypes and precision medicine in the ICU. Um, however, I'll say that clinically, we don't always apply these at the bedside yet. And Annette, I wanted to ask you, what are the next steps you see to get to ARDS phenotyping um, at the bedside? Well, I think Carolyn mentioned it. We have to be able to prospectively evaluate the current subgroups. And in addition to that, we need to be able to measure some of these protein biomarkers at the bedside. And I think those, those two approaches together will get us closer to where we need to be. Thank you so much, Annette. And I know one challenge that we've talked about in phenotyping is moving from research to applicability at the bedside is, um, and feasibility. Caroline, I was wondering if you can share with us today um, any of the work that you're doing now and how we can quickly and easily identify phenotypes for use clinically or in research. Yep, great question. Um, and this has been something that our group has been working hard on for the past several years, really led by um, my colleague, Pratik Sinha, who was my former postdoctoral fellow and is now a junior faculty member at Washington University in St. Louis. Um, we've developed both biomarker-based and non-biomarker-based uh, classification approaches. So biomarker-based because those seem to be the factors that most um, distinguish the phenotypes. But recognizing that, again, as we talked about earlier, we don't have a lot of these research biomarkers available at the bedside, though there are companies trying to push them forward. Can we use clinical data alone to identify the phenotypes? And so Dr. Sinha has developed uh, using a machine learning approach called XGBoost in, in collaboration with Matt Chirpek in Wisconsin, uh, a clinical classifier model that uses clinical data only to classify the phenotypes. 
and it actually performs better than we thought. So areas under the curve of around 0.9 to 0.95 for identifying the phenotypes. But again, it's not something that I can hand to you tomorrow and say, okay, Christina, take this to the bedside. We still need to validate it prospectively and we need to make it something that is widely accessible either on an app or built into an EHR so that we can start to do the type of studies Annette was referencing where we test prospectively, can we identify these phenotypes? And then once we can, does it make a difference? <laughs> does it really make a difference in a prospective fashion when we identify them in terms of treatment response? Before we wrap up, actually, one question that came up as you both were speaking, you mentioned sort of that, do they hold temporally? You know, if we identify these phenotypes on day one, are they still applicable on day seven or in case of COVID day 129 or whatever it is? But I'm just curious if either of you could comment on, on the stability of these phenotypes over time. Yeah, so I can comment briefly. We have tested this in a couple of older data sets now in, in data from the ARMA trial, which was the original low tidal volume trial, and the alveoli trial, which was, again, low versus high peak. And in both of those trials, we seem to see a similar pattern of two classes present, both on day zero of enrollment and day three of the trials. And we see that phenotype is stable for the vast majority of patients over that time. But a lot of caveats. That's old data. It's only a few days. Um, we don't know how well those classification algorithms are going to work over time. So lots more work to be done in terms of evaluating the temporal stability of these phenotypes. Uh, well, Caroline and Annette, thank you both so much for coming on the show with us today. I think um, discussing this has really been helpful and I, I've learned so much and I know those listening today probably we did as well. As we always do with each of our episode, uh, Firf and I like to wrap up with at least one key point to take away. I think mine today I have two. I think I really like, Annette, how you mentioned with ARDS, you know, the one size does not fit all and the importance of, you know, precision medicine in the ICU. And then Caroline, I think you mentioning the work that's been needing. I know there's a lot that's been done, but I think future work, as you mentioned, the importance of doing prospective studies on phenotypes is going to be essential for this. Dave, I'll go to you next. Um, one key point you want to leave listeners? Yeah, and that's the point that if we are going to get biomarker or biomarker panel, it has to be available at the bedside. It has to really identify some specific group or specific target that we're looking for. It has to be easily and, and consistently measurable. So, you know, looking out for uh, for those. And then the same thing, you know, like Caroline said, I love, I think there's this huge push that we see really cool data and it's retrospective and we want to apply it right away. And I think we probably will, but we need to be rigorous and take those next steps and do it prospectively. So I just love, love that you highlighted that. Awesome. Annette, any points you want listeners to remember from today? Sure. I think what I would want to emphasize, I think that precision medicine ARDS is possible and that if we can continue the work that lots of people are doing on identifying clinical and biological factors to categorize patients, the future of ARDS, you know, diagnosis and treatment is bright. Totally. I think it's so exciting what's on the horizon. Caroline, and we'll end with you today. If you want to leave one takeaway point. I just totally forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we can edit this going forward. Um, I was just staying in for now. <laughs> what's that? I said, we're leaving this in. No. <laughs> That's totally fine. Um, I, I guess 
my takeaway point would be there is no one best or one right way to phenotype these patients. I think there are numerous different approaches that we're probably going to be using over the years. But I would say that what we want to focus on is what has the potential to change outcomes for our patients and to really identify individual patients or groups of patients that respond differently to therapies. And I think if we can keep that goal in mind and start testing some of these hypotheses prospectively, we're going to make progress. Amazing. Well, thank you both so much again for coming on our show. It was a real treat for us. And thank you all for listening. Make sure that you tune in again in two weeks and uh, we'll see you next time. This episode was written, produced, and edited by myself and Christina Montanella. And the music was original music by Eric Rogers. Thanks so much. Thank you.